Hello there, friends and listeners. Welcome to another episode of the In Focus podcast. It's great to be back with you today, taking a fresh look at the Bible and some big Christian ideas to see how they bring our world into focus and empower us to live a new, more eternal kind of life within it. I'm your host, Justin Laughlin, husband, dad, pastor, and most importantly, follower and disciple of Jesus Christ, coming to you today from a beautiful uh, morning on the Front Range in Colorado. So today's a busy day for me. I probably won't get everything done that's on my to-do list, but in my daily reading this morning, I came across a passage in Deuteronomy that grabbed a hold of me so much that I decided to push off my day for a few minutes to run up here to my microphone to share some of my excitement and enthusiasm and wonder about the big themes and ideas that are laid out for us in this passage in Deuteronomy uh, that will later, as we shall see, converge in Jesus' life in some pretty remarkable ways. So, without further ado, with a long to-do list in front of all of us, no doubt, here's a passage from Deuteronomy that landed us here today, and it comes to us from chapter 18, starting in verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, speaking to Moses, from among you, from your brothers and sisters. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear again the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire anymore, lest we die." And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Okay, so uh, if you've been around the church for a while, you may have heard of this prophecy of the new prophet like Moses, and this is where that comes from. So, uh, a new prophet and is put onto the table, this prophet to be uh, anticipated, that is foretold, a prophet to whom we shall listen, uh, which I point out again because that will come up later, a prophet who will speak on behalf of God in some pretty extraordinary ways, a prophet who will serve as a mediary, mediary, excuse me, between the people and the God who appeared on the mountain in fire and deep darkness in some pretty foreboding ways, uh, at which point when that happened in the original instance with Moses, the people were rightly afraid and did not want to approach or directly hear from that holy, fiery God. Um, so, they wanted Moses to stand in the gap on their behalf. Anyway, uh, let's pause for a minute and backfill a little bit of content. So, in the previous chapter, in chapter 17, Moses lays out some thoughts on the future kingdom. So, once you're in the promised land, he says, you guys are going to want, you're going to beg, in fact, for a king so you can be just like all of the other nations of the world, which, of course, was an inherent rejection of God's calling that they would be different and distinct from the nations. Uh, but that's a whole other story. Uh, so that's what you're going to end up doing. You're going to beg for a king, and we're just going to work with you on that, meaning me and God are going to work with you on that. Uh, what we want you to do is just make sure that king is a man of the people, 
Uh, make sure that king does not acquire a bunch of horses. For heaven's sake, don't go back to Egypt for any reason. Don't acquire a bunch of wives and don't acquire a bunch of gold. Okay, so there's the king thing. You're going to want one. We'll let you have it. Don't get the wives, the horses, and the gold. Fast forward to the time of the prophet Samuel and the origin story for the kings of God's people. And as we all know from the recent rash of superhero movies, origin stories are important because they always lay the groundwork for everything that is to follow. So that's what we have here in the origin story of the kings. So the people reject God as their king, and they beg for a man to rule over them. Now, when this happens, Samuel's pretty ticked off at him uh, for this, but he acquiesces, and Saul is appointed as the king. Now, Saul is a total and immediate failure. Saul quickly then dies in battle, and David becomes the king. Now, David is also a total wreck if you really pay attention to the story, but at least his heart is true to God, even when he's out slaughtering tens of thousands of people, having affairs, murdering the husbands of the women he impregnates, and while his kids are at home, literally raping each other, trying to murder him, and then eventually taking over the throne. Um, It's bleak. That's the best king we've got. Um, but that's the reality of the situation. So David passes the throne to his son, Solomon. And Solomon on the surface seems pretty stinking great. He's super rich. He's super powerful. He's super famous. In fact, in a day before there was worldwide communication really of any sort, he is famous worldwide. He's everything we love in our culture. He's everything that even within the church, we tend to equate with God's blessing and God's favor. Except Solomon is actually not described as a good king. He's described as the exact kind of king that God prohibits. Remember that initial word God gave to Moses Don't acquire horses, don't acquire wives, and don't acquire riches. What do we read about Solomon? He accumulates horses. He accumulates an unbelievable number of wives and concubines, and he is rich beyond measure. Now, again, we are inclined to think, because we love money and things and fame, that this must be God's blessing and Solomon must be awesome. But this is specifically a description of how Solomon has rejected God's way. Hundreds of years later, we even read of one of Solomon's descendants tearing down one of the many, many temples that Solomon built for his wives to worship their false gods. And in this one in particular, that was where they went to sacrifice children. So, Solomon may be the American dream king, but in the actual biblical narrative, we learn very clearly that the kingship is a disaster from the beginning to the end, and nearly all of Solomon's descendants actually get worse and worse from there. So, the political system, the kingdom, uh, is a rejection of God's reign over the people, and it's a failure. So, 
Let's back up from our initial passage in Deuteronomy even more, again to another massive Old Testament theme that also continues into the New Testament, the priesthood. And surely this seems all well and good, right? People uh, serving God, being represented by special people, professionals serving God. Uh, But once again, not so much. Uh, We just mentioned the origin story for the kings and the trajectory that line took. Uh, But what about the origin story of the priests? This all begins when God calls Moses. Moses, let's go. I need to deliver my people from slavery and I need you to work with me to make it happen. And what's Moses' response? Hey God, that's great, but I'm not your guy. So, then God and Moses go back and forth a few times. God keeps affirming his plans and his decision, and Moses keeps dragging his feet and refusing until the text tells us God is angry. But look, God says, there's your brother Aaron on his way over here. I'll send him with you. I'll talk to you, and you talk to Aaron, and Aaron will talk to Pharaoh, and we'll just do it that way, since you're refusing to do what I'm asking you in the way I'm asking you to do it. And voila, the Aaronic priesthood is set in motion. And so with that said, how does the origin story quickly develop? What is the trajectory of this priestly um storyline and how does it develop in God's story. So, that's how it starts with Moses's rejection of God's way of doing things. A few weeks later, God has in fact delivered the people from Egypt with Moses and Aaron and they head out toward the land God promised them. So, Moses goes up to talk to God a little bit on the mount, on the fiery mountain uh, to get some of the ground rules for this new God-people venture. And Aaron, the wonderful high priest, collects a bunch of gold from the people to build an idol and have a massive worship party uh, around the golden cow that they now claim Uh, is the one who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you the priesthood in all of its glory. Fast forward again. God forgives Aaron, and now it's time to formally initiate the priesthood. So Aaron's getting a little bit older, so he's on the scene with two of his sons, that will naturally take over the priesthood when Aaron dies. So all sorts of fancy rituals are taking place for this inauguration ceremony of Aaron's family into the priesthood for God's people. And suddenly, the two guys who are in line to inherit the priesthood in the inaugural ceremony decide to willy-nilly take things into their own hands and boom, God strikes down the next two high priests and they're dead right on the spot in the middle of this inaugural ceremony. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, once again, the priesthood. So, like the kings, uh, also, it basically doesn't get much better than this as the priesthood story continues to unfold throughout the Old Testament and even into Jesus's day. So, the kings pretty bleak. The priesthood, 
pretty bleak. And what about this new prophet guy foretold in the initial passage we read? Now, this is hopeful. This is who the people need, not the kings or the priests that actually only came about because the people rejected God. So now, let's fast forward again, way forward this time, and Jesus is on the scene. Uh, And when Jesus is on the scene, as we've talked about many times before, no one really knows what to make of this guy. His teaching and his actions are blowing people's minds. There's a whole lot of talk about God's kingdom, but Jesus is not acting like any kind of king you might expect. There's also a lot of really strange talk about the temple, as if Jesus is not only a priestly figure, although he's in the wrong bloodline, so he couldn't possibly be that, uh, but it is also in some way the kind of talk as if Jesus is assuming into himself the entire role of the temple itself. So, uh, once again, of course, in Jesus' life, the, the king and priest storylines are all hovering nearby in the background, sometimes in the foreground. The same with Jesus as it has been in God's story since the passage we first read in Deuteronomy in the time of Moses, when God foretold of a new prophet who would succeed Moses and who would be sent to the people from God. So let's let's now dive into Jesus' story at Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said, because, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So, what is this bizarre encounter all about? Uh, What's the point in all of this thing? Uh, The point, the point, excuse me, is that Jesus is the long-anticipated prophet that will speak on behalf of God in some extraordinary ways. Jesus is the mediator between the holy, fiery God, remember they're up on the mountain again in this ominous, dark cloud, um, and a messed up, rebellious people. And then here comes the completely fabulous twist. Jesus is not only the prophet and the mediator, he is the fiery God who spoke 
uh, to both Moses and Elijah up on the mountain in the Old Testament. He is the Holy One from whom the people actually wanted to keep their distance. See, in this transfiguration, uh, Jesus' inner circle gets a glimpse of who he really is. Again, the foretold prophet and the fiery holy God, who for a moment here, uh, his identity is fully unmasked. So, let's, uh, let's, let's turn this back and pay attention to the details. The inner circle, along with Jesus, go up the mountain. They encounter the only two people in all of God's story up to this point who had ascended the mountain, met with the fiery God, and lived to tell about it. And Jesus' appearance is altered in this scenario. He was radiant. Jesus was like a man on fire. And finally, one more goosebumpy moment. Uh, remember the prophecy in Deuteronomy <clears throat> that the one who is to come is the one to whom you will listen. And now as the disciples are grappling with what to make of what is happening up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah and on fire Jesus, God speaks from the dark cloud that has surrounded Jesus and the disciples listen to him. Not surprisingly, once again, God's story and all of these details is coming together in and around Jesus in ways that are absolutely fantastic. This is amazing stuff. It's a very big idea. Now, what to do with it? How does this big idea of all these things coming together in Jesus, Jesus as the prophet, the mediator, and the fiery holy God. How does this empower us to live a more eternal kind of life? Uh, Let me just say this for today. Sell out. Go all in. Because the fiery holy God, the long-anticipated prophet, the eternal high priest, the king of all kings, is inviting you to follow him. He's inviting you to conform to his likeness, and he's inviting you to share in an eternal kingdom. So please, let's not piddle around with half-hearted church attendance. Let's not be fixated with momentary pleasures and desires. Let's not think and live like all the people around us for whom new cars, nice houses, ease, and security are the only big ideas. Let's think bigger and let's live bigger. Let's get close with some brothers and sisters in Christ who will relentlessly challenge and support us along the way to be a different, peculiar, distinct kind of people as we follow Jesus. And that is all I have to say about that, at least for now, of course. Until next time, let's keep fixing our eyes on Jesus and putting our lives on the line for him with everything we've got. Thanks again for joining me for today's episode. I hope that it has helped bring your world into a little better focus and inspired you to live a more eternal kind of life in Jesus Christ. I hope your heart is awakened to the story that you're part of and to our great King. I hope the fire is kindled in your bones to be part of what God is doing in the world 
for every day that God gives you between Jesus's ascension and his return. If you're streaming today's episode from a podcast provider like Apple, Google, Spotify, or anybody else, it'd be great if you take a second to give it a good rating and review and even become a subscriber. Uh, Your response and interaction will help the show get easier to find for new listeners in the future. If you'd like, you can also share this episode directly with your friends on social media. A link is provided to do this in the show notes. If you'd like to hear about anything specific from the Bible or a particular big Christian idea in the future, please email me. I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, thanks again for being a friend of the show and for tuning in to In Focus. May your world continue coming into clearer focus, and may God lead you into an increasingly eternal kind of life before Him.